This is very good news for me. I am not a winter person. Also, I was informed by Amber just before we went on that it's the 10 year anniversary of something very special. That's right, Staten Island Chuck is a groundhog that was held by Mayor Bill de Blasio. He dropped him on camera and seven days later, poor Staten Island Chuck died of internal injuries. Uh, very sad, hopefully we have some happier news ahead of us. Jessica, why don't you tell us what's up first? Yes, very sad. He dropped the groundhog and now we have eternal spring or summer. I'm not sure if this is when global warming started, but I'm happy to blame Bill de Blasio for just about anything. <laughs> and uh, Joe Biden's not doing so well in the polls. That's what we're going to talk about now. There's damning polls for Joe Biden that are continuing to circulate in the media. We'll be circulating a few for you just now. And these polls are sending the White House into a panic. A new national poll from CNN SSRS shows Trump up four points over Biden and Haley up 13 points over the president. We're still for Biden. Nearly two thirds of voters say that Biden does not deserve to be reelected. Just 36 percent think that he should get to go back to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Swing states don't look much better for the president. In the critical swing state of Georgia, Trump leads Biden by eight points a lead that doesn't disappear even as other candidates are added into the race. Notably, independent candidate RFK Jr. sits at 8 percent, while, Corn while Cornell West and Jill Stein are at 3 percent and 1 percent, respectively. Speaking of RFK, he took to X recently to slam the president over his seeming failure to address issues facing black Americans. RFK posted, quote, Joe Biden is campaigning in South Carolina right now. Let's reminisce on everything he's done for black Americans. Authored the 1994 crime bill, which led to the mass incarceration of black people, said if you don't vote for him, then you ain't black, extended penalties for people under 21 charged with selling marijuana, endorsed segregationist senators, opposed busing because he didn't want his kids to grow up in a, quote, racial jungle. RFK wasn't the only one who noted there might be some issues with Biden's tenuous coalition with minorities. MSNBC did a segment on how the left is abandoning Biden in droves. Take a look. I want to talk about those disappointed progressives and switch gears a moment. Jonathan Chait points out that the coalition that defeated Donald Trump in 2020 seems to have crumbled. He says the left wing of the party is so upset with Joe Biden that some of them are actually ambivalent about a Trump win. Juanita, what is the rationale here? Joe Biden didn't do enough for me, so I'm okay with Trump, who wants none of what I do? I think the rationale is that they are genuinely fatigued by the strain that people have been under for years now. And I think that came across, let's be real, when Elmo tweets out, tip check, how's everybody doing? And everybody's like, bad. And how does Biden respond to Trump? By swearing at him in private. A new report from Politico reveals the shocking news that Biden doesn't like the former president very much, which is simply stunning. So Amber, what do you make of a lot of these polls coming out? Uh, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden in a potential 2024 matchup. It's interesting. It's a little bit different than what we saw immediately after the Iowa caucus as Trump won by 30 points there. All of a sudden, there were some swing state polls that came out suggesting that Trump was actually performing quite poorly. 
And there was this conspiracy floating around from people in the DeSantis and Haley camps saying that basically the polls had been doctored or or uh, amended prior to the Iowa caucus to take away their arguments about electability. And then as soon as it was safe that Trump was going to get the nomination, the polls were going to be accurate and show Trump losing. Um, but now we see in this latest poll that, in fact, his lead in swing states against Biden remains, that it was what we thought it was a few months ago. Of course, Nikki Haley still has, I guess, a, uh, her point about electability and that she performs even better against Joe Biden in the national polls than Donald Trump. But then the question becomes, OK, is electability, though, more important than electing someone who shares your values, your ideology? And clearly, members of the Republican Party are saying no. Yeah, I, I, that CNN poll has Trump up by four uh, over Biden. It's got a margin of error of 3.8%. Moreover, they polled non-registered voters. It was just a sample of people nationally over the age of 18. And so we know that those polls tend to not be super representative because we don't have high voter participation in the country at most, about 60%. And so we tend to trust the, the polls of, of registered voters which tell a bit of a different story. So the Quinnipiac poll, as compared to the CNN poll, paints a more positive picture for Biden. It was taken nationally, but among registered voters in the same time span of January 25th through the 30th. It's got a smaller margin of error of just 2.4%. And it's got Biden up 50 to 44. So, you know, as much as I would love these polls showing Trump winning to send the Biden administration into this mode of we've got to get some stuff done, before we come to the polls, before election day rolls around. I would love that. I don't think that's the situation we're in. I think the polls show that it's still an extremely close race. Uh, but I, it's interesting to see Nikki Haley up 13%. She performs well among you know the voting class of people. I think people are worried not only about the Middle East, which eight in 10 voters in this Quinnipiac poll said you know, they were very concerned about the administration's handling of, but also Joe Biden's age. I think Nikki Haley's a little bit younger, and that's why in some of these national polls, she's performing very well. But I just don't see her popularity withstanding the next few months into November. I agree. I think she's been relatively untested uh, prior to this national race. And she's gotten some attacks from the DeSantis campaign, some from Trump. But if we, we get what we all wish for, I mean, at least I'm wishing for this, a Trump-Haley debate, uh, she's going to be laid bare for all the world to see. Um, her campaign keeps begging Trump to debate her in South Carolina. I think that's a terrible idea. Uh, there's no reason why Trump should do it in the first place. But just for entertainment value alone, I wish that he would. Um, but I think you're right. Uh, the polls across the board definitely show a pretty tight race, effectively tied from a national level. The swing states give a slight edge to um, former President Donald Trump. And then uh, this question on foreign policy is really important, because foreign policy and national security are typically not huge issues in presidential elections. Uh, but now we see it creeping into fourth, fifth place for voters because of all of the craziness that's been going on abroad, whether it's Russia and Ukraine, whether it's the Israel-Palestine conflict, which has uh, Biden's base of Arab Americans and young Americans fleeing from supporting him because of his uh, handling of that and his support of Israel and his continuance of providing weapons and aids to aid to Israel. And then we have this conflict with Iran, where the Iranian-backed Houthis are attacking U.S. ships in the Red Sea. 
Now we have a drone strike in Jordan by a different Iranian-backed militia that killed three American service members. Biden is still um, apparently determining what exactly the, the response is going to be. He claims he's decided, but it took him three or four days. We still don't know exactly what it's going to be. Um, I think there were reports saying that he was going to launch some kind of strike. But there's a, a huge possibility, of course, that this could escalate tensions in the region, could escalate us into a war with Iran. So when you're looking as a voter at all of these situations, uh, and especially given the fact that Biden's poll numbers first started to plummet after the Afghanistan withdrawal because of how horribly that was handled, um, when you're looking at the difference between a Joe Biden and a Nikki Haley on foreign policy, they're effectively the same. So I would think that for voters who are really concerned about foreign policy, as the race goes on, as these candidates start to lay out their foreign policy ideology um, a little bit more strongly, then you're going to start to see maybe some of that support for Haley decline as they realize that she is very, very similar to Biden on these issues. Right. And when third party candidates are introduced into these polls, we see Trump and Biden at 37 percent, 39 percent. So things are going to look very different come to 2024 when we're not doing these polls of just a matchup of Biden versus Trump. And statements like the the one that RFK Jr. made about Biden on race, I think, are really going to affect ultimately who people vote for and if they opt for a third party candidate. That MSNBC interview really focused on, you know, are you really going to, as a minority, vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump, who said things that are bad about minorities? And there's such a focus on sentiments, on what they're saying, and not what the actual material consequences are of their presidency. Biden was saying, essentially, the administration was saying that Iran was, was guilty in the situation with the Houthis for supplying them with weapons. And by that standard, if you are an ally of Palestine, theoretically, you could be very disappointed and hold the United States accountable for supplying weapons to Israel by the same moral structure. And so I think the administration's got to be very careful about how involved they get with Iran over this conflict, because that same argument that the U.S. is making could be used directly against us for us supplying weapons to Israel. And so really, the material consequences of a Biden presidency, if you're of Palestinian descent or if you see the Palestinian struggle as a struggle that's shared among minorities or just people fighting for liberation, you're going to be extremely critical of the Biden administration. You're probably not going to vote for them. It doesn't really matter if Donald Trump is out there saying things that you deem are racist, if Joe Biden's policies are hurting minority populations at home and abroad. And so I really think that's where decisions are coming from. And it's funny to me to see MSNBC just make this all about what's been said and not what the policy consequences are. I just hate when political conversations seem to forget that it's the president's job to govern. It's sort of the uh, the classic axiom that comes from Trump supporters and, and surrogates for the Trump campaign, which is, hey, you guys didn't like mean tweets and look at what you got. We're going to be back with more Rising after this. Plans for United States strikes on Iranian personnel and facilities in Iraq and Syria have been approved in response to the drone attack that killed three United States troops last Sunday. United States Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the United States will respond to the attacks taking place in the Middle East. It, we will have a, a multi-tiered response. Uh, and, uh, and again, we have the ability to... Uh, uh, to respond uh, a number in a, a number of times. 
Here's more from Austin discussing the January 28th attack yesterday. Well, we believe that this was uh, done by an element of what is known as the uh, axis of resistance. Uh, and uh, these are Iranian proxy groups. Uh, and how much Iran knew or didn't know, we, we don't know. But it really doesn't matter because Iran sponsors these groups, it funds these groups, uh, and uh, in some cases, it, uh, it trains these groups on uh, advanced conventional weapons. Uh, and so, you know, I, again, I, I think without that facilitation, these kind of, kinds of things don't happen. Meanwhile, Houthi militants in Yemen launched three separate attacks on the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea yesterday. Per Fox News, around 5 a.m. U.S. Central Command forces shot down a drone over the Gulf of Aden. And later that day, CENTCOM forces reportedly destroyed a Houthi explosive uncrewed surface vehicle in the Red Sea. According to the United States forces, the USV was heading toward the international shipping lane. That afternoon, two missiles were launched from Yemen toward a Liberian-flagged Bermuda-owned cargo ship, Fox News reports. So I don't know, Amber, when I hear about, you know, this unrestrained proxy group operating in the Middle East that's backed by Iran, at this point, we have an ally. We can't call them a, a proxy group, but it can be called a proxy war when you consider the amount of weapons the U.S. is giving to Israel and now, currently, you have the administration, Netanyahu and the like, that have openly said they want the entire land to be Israel, from the river to the sea. And then the United States, you have the Biden administration saying, no, there needs to be a post-war Palestinian state, something that Israel disagrees with, not just in that sentiment from the river to the sea. They've explicitly said there cannot be a Palestinian state post-war. So it feels difficult to have this situation with Iran and hold Iran accountable for what the Houthis are doing when you have Israel not so far away. Uh, I guess I would separate the two issues, perhaps. I mean, I think it just depends on whether or not you actually think what Israel's doing is a genocide or war crimes as to whether or not the U.S. would be considered, quote unquote, complicit. But on the issue of Iran, I think the, the obvious uh, analysis here is that Biden's strategy of appeasement has not worked. He has tried since the beginning of his presidency to basically conduct a shadow Iran deal. He lifted sanctions on Iran. He uh, agreed to releasing all kinds of funds that were held up um, in exchange for hostages and, and prisoner releases. And that billions of dollars that he freed up for Iran, um, they claimed was only going to be used for humanitarian reasons. But of course, money is fungible. So now they have an additional six, seven, eight billion dollars that they can use to fund these militia groups and fund the manufacturing of the weapons that they're using to then kill American service members. I think it shows a, a really disturbing level of weakness that it took Biden three or four days to even decide what he wanted to do in response to this. Um, the general rule has been you don't touch American citizens, you don't touch a hair on their head. We now have three of them dead and we have the president waffling over what he wants to do. To me, this is a complete abdication of leadership. I'm not advocating for war in Iran. Uh, I think strikes, if, if done, should be very carefully targeted, if anything. If we do anything, we should absolutely reimpose sanctions on Iran. But to turn around and do nothing sends a very dangerous signal of weakness. And unfortunately, that's been sort of the tenor of the Biden presidency. Meanwhile, United States intelligence officials have estimated that Tehran does not have full control over its proxy groups in the Middle East, including those allegedly behind the attack and death of U.S. troops in the recent weeks, according to Politico. 
Officials say Me. Dura does not appear to have complete authority over the operational decision-making of the Quds Force, an elite branch of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps that is responsible for sending weapons to militias in Iraq and Syria and the Houthis in Yemen. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden called one of the three families who lost their child in the attack on United States troops. I, I know there's nothing anybody can say or do to ease the pain. I've been there. Yes, sir, we understand. The parents overcome with emotion when the president reveals how their daughter will be honored. We're promoting her posthumously to sergeant. Oh, wow, Thanks, that is sir. the best news I've heard today. Thank you so much. You don't know how much that means to us. Oh, well, I tell you what, it means a lot to, a lot to me. Uh, my son spent a year in Iraq until I lost him. And uh, I, uh, you know, 1%, 1% of all these kids are the ones that uh, take care of 99% of us. So at the end of so our I clip there, Jessica, you hear Joe Biden bringing up his son, Beau, and he does this a lot when he's talking to military families. And I understand that his son served, but he didn't die in Iraq. He didn't come home in a flag-draped coffin, as he often tells people. His son died years later after returning from serving of brain cancer. And Biden believes that this was due to perhaps toxic fumes that he inhaled while he was serving, but it's not the same as someone being killed while on deployment. And I think the fact that he keeps trying to make these people's grief his and about him is very disturbing. There's been some military families who have spoken about this and are quite angry and furious at the way that Biden talked to them about their dead children. And it it's a reminder, I think, of the false media narrative that was pushed around uh, during the campaign and, and even after he won election, that Biden was this so-called empath in chief, that he was going to help the nation grieve the, the previous four years of Trump. I think it's totally bogus, and it's just downright bizarre that he continues to lie about the circumstances of his son's death. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of people who served in Vietnam that came back that later died of AIDS. Agent Orange, would I say that if the Vietnam War never happened and they never served, they wouldn't have died? Yeah, I do. Uh, I do think that. And so, yes, of course, there's all kinds of dangerous chemicals used in the weapons that are used in combat. I think just having a family member who has served, there's something you can relate with the families that are grieving, bonding over, you know, we understand the sacrifice that your family member has made. We understand the feeling of sending them away, knowing that they're making this potential sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of losing their life for their country. I think it, it, it just makes sense to bring it up and say, you know, I have some sense of what you're going through right now uh, to console a family who's grieving. I think, you know, to go back to, you know, our earlier comments on the conflict as a whole, when you have a situation like this, I don't think we can, you know, take away this conflict and judge it on its own outside of every other conflict internationally. I think that's, you know, the one thing about every international conflict is that they're all irreversibly intertwined. So when we think about the sanctions being removed on Iran or the United States co cooperating with Saudi Arabia again, when, you know, tensions between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, tensions between the U.S. and Iran were pretty recent, we did that because of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We did that so that the oil market wouldn't crash as a result of sanctions against Russia. We tapped a lot of our reserves. And so we made some moves politically 
because we wanted some oil to be opened up because we cared more about Russia than we cared about Iran and Saudi Arabia at the time. And so now we're in the situation where we care far more about the situation in Israel than we care about Ukraine and Russia and freeing up oil and energy prices in Europe. And so now we're probably happy to sanction Iran again, uh, just to make a point about the Houthis attacks on shipping and about what's going on with Israel and tensions in the region. And so I really think all of these conflicts are intertwined in a complicated way because the United States doesn't relate to other countries with any consistent moral code. Whatever is most pressing in that moment in time to protect U.S. interests, which oftentimes compromises U.S. interests in the long term. So I think, you know, if, if we're upset about what's going on with the Houthis, the solution is not to strike back at Iran. I think the solution is to realize that we're sending weapons to a leader who is not doing something that's aligned with the administration's strategy or interests in the region. We've explicitly said it's not. So I think the way forward, rather than sending troops and putting them at risk in the Middle East, the solution would be to pull back weapons and wait and see what the outcome of the ultimate ICJ ruling is after the subsequent analysis of Israel's actions. Are they actually committing a genocide? They were worried about that. And there's going to be follow up about that. I think it's time for the U.S. to pull back. That would be the smart move diplomatically and would be in the best interests of the working people across the country that go on and lay their life's on the line to serve the country. Yeah, we're about out of time. I would just close with the fact that my issue with Joe Biden bringing up Bo is not that he's trying to relate to the people who are grieving, but that he lies about the circumstances of his son's death and makes their grief about him. And I'm just speaking from experience, when you are in the midst of, of immense grief, the last thing you want to hear is, I know how you feel. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Disturbing news as a group of pro-life activists from Nashville were recently found guilty in federal court under the FACE Act for quietly and peacefully protesting outside a local abortion clinic. Here's a little snippet of that protest from March of 2021. The FACE, or Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, makes it illegal to block access to abortion clinics. The protesters each face up to 11 years in jail, three years of supervised release, and a fine of up to $260,000. A little more than a year ago, one of the protesters was arrested in a chilling appearance by the FBI. Watch. But if you're not going to let me, then I'll just- No, I want to know why you were banging on my door with a gun. You're not going to tell me anything? No, do not. Let me 
I, you, I, I tried. You no, you didn't. Yes, did. You did not try. Some were quick to point out the seemingly hypocritical nature of arresting peaceful protesters with how far more violent some activists were treated if their causes were more politically aligned with the powers that be. The Daily Wire's Matt Walsh posted a quote from the U.S. attorney on the case who said, quote, something is not peaceful if laws are broken. Walsh said this was an example of, quote, full-on Soviet-style corruption and persecution. Here now to discuss this story further is senior reporter at The Daily Signal, Mary Margaret Olihan. So, Mary Margaret, walk us a little bit through this case. This is, of course, also not the first time that a pro-lifer has been arrested by the Biden G DOJ. You covered the Mark Houck case previously. He ended up being acquitted. But these individuals were found guilty of violating the FACE Act. Tell us a little bit about the protest and what the feds were alleging they did wrong. Well, it's great to be here, Amber. And, and this incident is one of a number of incidents that the DOJ is targeting as crimes violating the FACE Act. And what happened here was these pro-life activists went to an abortion clinic prepared to go and talk to women and tell them why they don't think they should abort their babies. Keep in mind, these pro-life activists believe that abortion is the murder of an unborn child. So that's good context to have here. So they go to the abortion clinic, they pray outside, they sing. They talk to the people that are going in and out. And unfortunately, this is a violation of the Freedom of Access to Abortion Clinic er, to Clinic Entrances Act. And the Biden Department of Justice has specifically said that they're enforcing this act as a response to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And we have DOJ officials on the record saying that. So after Roe was overturned, we saw multiple different people be arrested in front of their children at gunpoint and brought in and charged with violations of the FACE Act. And this is another example of that. Now, you're right, Amber, people are comparing this to the other different protests around the country. For example, the Black Lives Matter protests involving the death of George Floyd, where many of these people who committed violent crimes were allowed to go free, whereas we see these pro-lifers looking at 11 years in prison. So 11 years sounds, you know, pretty nice compared to the 20 years that the Stop Cop City protesters are facing in Atlanta. 21 were arrested, including those that were there as observers of the protest to see that the law was observed there. They were among the 61 that were arrested and are now facing a penalty of 20 years. It sounds to me like the laws applied pretty evenly. Uh, I, I just can't see how you would say that those being charged for blocking entrance to the abortion clinic, a direct violation of the laws, is somehow the same as BLM protesters who are in the streets. Are you aware of occasions where laws were broken and individuals were not arrested? Well, I think it's important to look at the context here. If you look at what they actually did, and there's a really great video, my friend Greg Price tweeted it, and it shows what happened at this, this so-called protest. These pro-lifers went and were singing and praying outside of an abortion clinic where babies' lives are being ended. Now, you can agree or disagree that abortion is wrong, but you can look at that video and see they are praying, praying and singing for the lives of babies. So it's a, little, it's a little funny to compare these two incidents and say that perhaps these people deserve 11 years in prison for what they did in that moment. Yeah, I mean, 14, I think the— People were arrested since June 22nd, 2020, in relation to BLM protests across 49 cities. It sounds like, you know, the law was applied pretty evenly. It doesn't seem like a fair comparison to me. 
Amber, I didn't want to take that away from if you were going to go. Oh, yes, thank you. I was going to go. So, I mean, I think the comparison would have to be peaceful protest to peaceful protest, right? Because this objectively was a peaceful protest. You can look at the video. You can see them literally just singing and saying prayer. Compared to the BLM people, few who were arrested, a lot of them were not. A lot of them continue to walk free, facing far shorter sentences for actually either engaging in violence against police officers, breaking property, looting, rioting. So I think that's the direct comparison, um, not, uh, you know, you'd have to make a direct comparison of peaceful to peaceful in order for those sentences to be comparable. But um, what I wanted to ask you, uh, Mary Margaret, as well, is that um, the FACE Act also covers places of religious worship. And in the overturning of Roe v. Wade, there were multiple Catholic churches, hundreds actually, that were vandalized. Um, and there were also cases where um, protesters disrupted Catholic masses right here in Washington, D.C. As far as I know, those people have not been arrested or charged. Is that correct? No, and this is really important context as well. In the aftermath of the Dobbs leak, so in May of, I believe, 2022, we have seen hundreds of attacks on pro-life pregnancy centers and churches, which are both protected by the FACE Act as well. Now, as a reporter that covers this, I have for two years now, I guess, been reaching out to the Department of Justice and saying, what happened to these criminals? Like, have you pr prosecuted any of them with the FACE Act? And as of two days ago, I found out that the DOJ has only charged five people, five pro-abortion individuals with attacking pregnancy centers. Uh, under the FACE Act. So that's five individuals out of 88 attacks. Meanwhile, they have not charged a single individual with FACE Act charges for their attacks on Catholic churches. And there's been over 200 since the Dobbs leak. So with that context, I think when we look at how the DOJ is using the FACE Act, it is very clear that they're only using it to charge pro-abortion or to charge pro-life activists. And, and keep in mind, the pro-life activists being charged we're singing and praying outside of abortion clinics, whereas the pro-abortion individuals who have not been charged firebombed abortion or pregnancy centers, firebombed churches, Molotov cocktails, smashing windows, writing, if abortion isn't safe, neither are you. So that discrepancy is, I think, what has a lot of conservatives not and, and middle-of-the-road Americans very upset about what's going on here. So the FACE Act was passed under Bill Clinton. It was a response to death threats, bomb threats, attacks on abortion clinics across the country by pro-life individuals. That's how this law came into place. You know, when I think about people blocking entry to a clinic where women, many pregnant women, are receiving health care, I get a little worried. I think it's a good part of a free society that if someone needs to and wants to go to the doctor, that they should be able to. And so in a case where someone's blocking potentially a woman who needs health care for her baby, for her baby's life, right? These are pro-life protesters. They care about the baby's life. They were praying for it. Accessing that health care seems pretty important for the baby's life. So I don't know. I'm kind of on the side of if, if someone wants to access a health care clinic and there are people preventing them, you know, there should be something done about that. And when I consider, you know, access to healthcare facilities, all in all, we've had this conversation a lot with what's going on in Israel and Palestine. And a lot of people across the globe seem to be on the side of people should be able to access healthcare facilities when they want to. And I'm just going to quickly go back to that uh, peaceful protest comparison. Many of the arrests during BLM were because people violated the curfews that were set just hours before they were outside. And so, of course, there were arrests for peaceful protests. But I think this one seems to be specifically about accessing the healthcare clinic 
Are you worried at all about moms that were pregnant and their babies not being able to get health care if they're clinic where they, you know, get that health care's blocked entrance of? Well, I would agree with you, except that unfortunately, abortion clinics in the United States don't provide care for babies. They exist to abort babies or offer patients transgender care, as the Planned Parenthood clinics would say. So they offer hormones to young people or they offer abortions. Right, just quickly, to this was not a Planned Parenthood. This was Mount Juliet's, which is a family care right. clinic. They do more than abortions. It was not a Planned Parenthood. Uh, well, they advertise that they do more than abortions, but if you talk to the women that go there, people go there to get an abortion. So I, you know, I think this is often misinformation that we hear that abortion clinics offer care for mothers and babies. Unfortunately, they do not. And the women that go in there are usually offered only one option, which is abortion, or they're given more information on obtaining abortion pills. And uh, so this, is, this really is misinformation that is spread about abortion clinics, that they offer care to mothers and babies. And, uh, you know, a woman going into an abortion clinic is is going to be, you know, the abortion clinic is going to seek to so-called so help her, not necessarily her unborn child, who, frankly, is in a lot of danger in an abortion clinic. I would also add just briefly that these individuals were not barring physical access to the door of this clinic. They were collected in the hallway outside of the clinic. And what is happening, I think, is that the FACE Act is being interpreted to punish anyone who uh, who engages in a protest outside of an abortion clinic and being interpreted as being outside of the clinic as somehow impeding access, even though these um, individuals who wanted to go into the center were more than capable of doing so. It's not like they put a chain across the door. So unfortunately, we're out of time, but we'll have to have you back, Mary Margaret. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with more Rising after this. In a Zoom call about mental health, California Governor Gavin Newsom recounted a time when he was in Target and saw someone walk out without paying. The Target employee later blamed Newsom for his stealing. As we're checking out, the woman says, oh, he's just walking out. He didn't pay for that. I said, well, why didn't you stop him? She goes, oh, the governor. I swear to God, true story. I'm a mom's friend. The governor lowered the threshold. There's no, there's no, there's no accountability. Said, well, we don't stop him because of the governor. And then she goes, she looks at me twice, and then she freaks out. She calls everyone over, wants to take photos. Meanwhile, a Trump administration official was shot in Washington, D.C. earlier this week amid a carjacking spree. Mike Gill, who served as chief operating officer of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission under the Trump administration, is in critical condition in the hospital after being shot while picking his wife up from work on K Street in downtown D.C., just a few blocks from this studio. According to The Washington Post, after shooting Gill, the same man is believed to have conducted at least two carjackings and one attempted carjacking, and the victim of one of them has died. D.C. Attorney General Brian Schwab weighed in on the crime wave, wave sweeping the nation's capital. Let's watch. We as a city and a community need to be much more focused on prevention and surrounding young people and their families with resources if we want to be safer in the long run. We cannot prosecute and arrest our way out of it. Finally, D.C. using the data on how to address crime in the city. But I don't know, that guy that was a commodities future trader, dangerous business, who knows if it was organized or random. 
But I, I kind of like this approach. It seems to be the right approach to me, given that the data shows that when people are comfortable, have access to resources, are receiving a good education, have a stable job, is that they don't commit crimes as much. And so as a city, you've got to focus on being a flourishing city because, you know, he said we cannot arrest and prosecute our way out of this. I think he's right. That punishment can't be the solution here. It needs to be a much longer term root source solution. Were you being serious about the Trump official being a target, or was that a joke? Uh, commodities future trading, that it's a dangerous business. Yeah. I do believe it's a very dangerous business. Were you joking about that being the reason why he was killed during a carjacking, though? Oh, we never, well, I don't believe he was shot during a carjacking. That guy was shot on his way to pick up his wife. But we, don't, we never know in the case of a shooting if it's premeditated, if there's a motivation here, or if it was a random act. Right. So what happened is that he was in the car in the driver's seat picking up his wife from work and a man came into the passenger side and shot him in pursuit of stealing his vehicle. The guy managed to get out of the car and collapsed on the sidewalk and the suspect fled on foot where he went on to then carjack three other people. In fact, the incident immediately following, he shot a male, uh, a male individual with his girlfriend, took his car keys. Um, but then, I guess, after shooting him, decided to flee. Then he stole two more cars that evening. He was eventually uh, killed himself because he decided at the end of his carjacking spree to shoot at police officers, and they fired upon him and killing him. So this Trump official was a part of the carjacking spree. It was not a targeted killing. This was a completely random event. Um, he's still fighting for his life in the hospital. But I find it rich what the uh, Attorney General Brian Schwab is saying there. I mean, I agree that obviously to reduce crime, you should try to address root causes, but that takes a long time. And we don't have time to spare right now with the issues that we're having in Washington, D.C. When you actually look at reporting that's been done on the spree of teen carjackings in this city, they are quite clear about their reasons for doing it. It's not about poverty or broken homes or not being in school. They do it because it's fun, because it's a thrill, and because they know that they're not going to be held accountable for it. There were other people on that panel, in fact. There was a foster dad um, whose last name was McGilly. And he talked about the fact that two of his foster children were involved in carjackings because the teen groups in this city have decided that it's a fun way to spend an evening. One of his sons was arrested by police outside of his house after one particularly bad spree, and then the police dropped the charges. And he urged the other people on that panel to hold these kids accountable for what they're doing Rather than just focus on prevention, you have to also focus on punishment after they do commit a bad act. And unfortunately, these are not victimless crimes. You're ending up with hundreds of people who are dealing with the trauma of having a gun pointed to their head simply for the crime of driving around their city where their officials and their police are supposed to protect them. So I think bare minimum, you have to say that these kids should face some accountability. The biggest deterrent of crime is the certainty of getting caught and then a, a complex a range of things related to punishment in terms of both the swiftness of punishment, the severity of punishment, and the certainty of punishment. It's quite clear that these people would not continue to carjack if they knew that they were going to get caught and potentially face some kind of accountability if they were caught. What do you think the solution is, Amber? 
I just said, you should hold them accountable. So what does that mean? It means a range of things. It could mean a short amount of jail time, community service with a fine for a first offense, um, potentially a longer sentence if you're found to be a repeat offender, which most of these people are. I think if you're at the point in your life where you're holding a gun up to somebody's head while they're driving around in their car and doing it five plus times a night because you think it's fun to take a car, drive it a block, and then post it on TikTok as a member of the Kia Boys, then absolutely you should be serving some jail time. That's a violent criminal act. I don't know why we're treating this like it's no big deal or like these kids are just lost on their way. There's plenty of people in our country who are raised in all kinds of terrible circumstances who don't go on to hurt other people as an excuse. I like how you paint DC like it's just one big GTA lobby and that people are carjacking for fun. I just, I don't know. I feel like people don't pursue a life of crime because it's fun. I feel like people get involved in crime because they're in desperate situations. Maybe some of them uh, end up finding some joy in what they end up doing with their time, find a thrill in doing carjackings. But I don't know. Maybe it's people who are playing GTA and they genuinely think it's fun and, you know, it's very exciting to steal cars. But I think most of them are in a position where they're they're doing carjackings, they're doing burglaries because they they need money and because the price of cars have gone up so much and you know, we've seen used car truck salesmen increase their profit tremendously. Their markup once they get to the lot is very high. We also saw the price of cars going up during the pandemic, of course, because of the lack of microchips. But I think all in all, what we're seeing here is the result of the city kind of degrading because of a lack of investment in working people and working communities and having good paid jobs and protections against workers being exploited. I think you know, it would be very ignorant to assume that most of the crimes committed in the United States are just for fun, that the carjackings in DCs are in DC are just a bunch of guys who like playing GTA and want to make it real. I think most of the time it's people who need the money that they ultimately get from selling the car. And that's an unfortunate reality, but the data really shows that when someone's in a more desperate economic situation, they have a propensity to commit crimes. And that's true not just of DC, thankfully outside of DC. We've seen crime go down nationally and carjacking's the only stat where it's up. So hopefully, you know, with longer term solutions, we can address some of the crime that we're seeing in the country. But very good to see that violent crime metrics, especially in America's five largest cities, are down. Yeah, D.C. is GTA, unfortunately, and it's not ignorant to talk about it for what it is. It is exactly what is happening, that kids are following social media trends and getting a kick out of stealing cars. They're not... Actually, most of them are not selling the cars. Um, they actually end up abandoning the cars a few blocks down the road, a few miles down the road, and then they carjack another one. I mean, these individuals are legitimately going on sprees, stealing four, five cars in an evening, and then just abandoning it when they get bored of it to try to find some upgrade. And this is not me saying this. I'm not just you know, uh, projecting my feelings about what's happening on DC. First of all, I've lived here for a decade. I've been following the reporters who are talking about this issue, some of whom, by the way, are very left-wing and don't support my plan of just putting people in jail or holding them accountable when they commit crime. But even on that panel, you had those public officials who are all Democrats talking about this problem and being quite clear um, outside of what Brian Schwab said in that small clip that they do believe that this is a game to these kids. This is not about them 
stealing a car because they needed to drive to work or stealing a car because they can sell it for a few thousand dollars. They are actually doing this for sport. They're having a good time of it. They go out at night, uh, some of them multiple times a week. They steal three or four cars and they are smoking weed or playing loud music or having a good time with one another and then going back home and acting like it was no big deal. I mean, this is a, a legitimate a trend that you can find all kinds of reporting on in D.C., whether it's the crime statistics, there's been articles from The New York Times, The Washington Post, um, DCist, Fox 5 D.C., about the trend of carjackings and what's driving it, um, as well as uh, these statements from public officials. So it's not my opinion that this is what is happening. It is what is happening. <laughs> it's interesting. You said social media. I haven't seen anything on social media. Is that how you know they're going home like nothing's happening? They're doing it for fun. They're smoking weed. Are they I'm blogging that the their activities? I'm saying that the, the trend comes from TikTok. It's called Kia Boys or Hyundai Boys. It has, uh, as far as I know, millions of views and has become quite prevalent across the country. It's especially prevalent in D.C. because the kids know that they're not going to be held accountable or even potentially be caught if they go through this. But yes, a lot of them do take videos of their deeds. There's also street surveillance cameras around the city. And we've seen how people um, are carjacked and then their car is abandoned two blocks later. The kids run off laughing into the night. So yeah, there is data. There is uh, evidence of this happening. Hmm. I'm not sure it describes every single carjacking we're seeing because many, in many cases, they're not getting their vehicle back. The vehicle is taken and it's stripped for parts. So I, I can understand this being a, a maybe a few videos of this, but I really don't think this describes the uptick in carjacking we've seen as it correlates with the price of vehicles. And I heard you mention, you know, there are members of a panel that were left wing that see this the same way as you because they're Democrats. Many Democrats are not left wing. Democrats, if you ask any leftists, are, are pretty right wing, pretty, pretty center. So I don't know. In this situation of the carjacking spike in D.C., I'm not particularly concerned about it because I think once we see the price of vehicles go down. Well, it's easy to not uh, be concerned we'll if you're not the person having a gun pointed and at your I head for driving to work. The national this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> which we've seen go down. I'm not going to let you interrupt me when I have something to say in response. But we've seen the national crime statistics go down. So I think like sometimes reporting on this so much gives people a false perspective that we are seeing a huge spike in all kinds of violent crimes and the, the cities are very dangerous. I've walked through the streets of D.C. quite a bit and haven't seen anything. So I don't know. I, it kind of feels like we're focusing on the one stat that's up when there are a lot of stats that are down. Yeah, because it matters to people who live here when they can't drive or park on the street because they're worried about, one, their car being stolen, or two, a gun pointed at their head and being forced out of their car. That's a traumatizing event for people, and I don't understand why we're acting like the people who are committing the violent crime are the victims more than the people who are being subject to that violent crime. Never said they're victims of a crime. I said, you know, they're living in a city where... It is true that most working people in America are living paycheck to paycheck. They're struggling to get by. And the data shows time and again through the last century or so that in situations that are economically struggling, we see crime go up. It's just a, a proven empirical fact. Right. But most working people don't resort to violent crime in order to 
make themselves feel better about their situation or try to glean some money from their situation. But even just going back, I mean, you said that I was painting all carjackings as this. I'm not saying that. There are certainly cases where cars in D.C. are stolen and then stripped for parts or sold. In fact, there was a ring of, uh, of car thefts where the cars were then taken to Baltimore and shipped out of the port for cash. Understand that. That's a, a criminal enterprise, essentially. It's, uh, but the vast majority are indeed done by teenagers. And the teenagers are not taking the cars to sell. They are dropping them off a few blocks down the road, abandoning them, um, and then going on to continue their spree. But um, I think we should continue talking about this because this is an important issue for people who live in the nation's capital. I think it's fair to say that the nation's capital should not be a place where people have to be worried about uh, about being stopped at a stoplight and potentially becoming the victim of a random crime. There were over 900 carjackings last year. That's an average of three every single day. Right now, we're on pace for about 500 to 600 this year. A lot of our viewers live in D.C. because this is fundamentally a show about politics and what happens in D.C., um, as well as other things, too. But a lot of viewers are in D.C., so I think that this is important to them. But we'll be back with more Rising after this. We have an update on the sex scandal that took place inside the Senate this past December. The United States Capitol Police say that they will not charge anyone in the video from the Senate hearing room. The police said in a statement, for now, we are closing the investigation into the facts and circumstances surrounding a sex video that was recorded inside the Hart Senate office building on the morning of Wednesday, December 13th. There's currently no evidence that a crime was committed. So very interesting, the laws around privacy in the case of recording yourself and yourself and a consenting partner uh, doing sex acts. It seems that a lot of the laws revolve around consent. And if you have an expectation of privacy, it's generally permitted, whereas there are laws about recording in a bathroom. So I'm curious, are there a different set of rules for staff in Congress? Are they going to have to add this to their code of conduct? Seemingly, I wouldn't think of this as something necessary to put in the code of conduct, but that's where we are. But the legality, interesting that there's no laws being broken here. Uh, I would disagree. So DC does have an obscenity law that prevents the filming of pornography, essentially. This was done in a, essentially a public space that's shared with other people. This was not done in the privacy of their home. It was done in their workplace, um, where there were apparently, from what I heard, other people actually present in the gallery while this was going on. And it was filmed apparently with the intent of making it available for public consumption. There were some videos from this staffer that were posted on his public X account. And these were also shared in large group chats with dozens of other individuals. And so it seems clear to me that this would be a violation of DC's obscenity law. But apparently, the police decided to let it go because they said the two individuals in the video decided not to cooperate with them. Um, they apparently exercised their Fifth Amendment rights, which is fine. But I don't know how exactly that uh, would uh, negate the, the ability to charge them, because it's literally on video what they did. I mean, I guess at the very least, this guy was fired from his job. That should have been the bare minimum. Although he claimed on a LinkedIn post at the time that he would not disrespect his workplace and any uh, attempts to characterize my actions otherwise are fabricated, um, which is just bizarre. I mean, the whole nature of what he did was disrespecting his workplace. So um, 
I, I'm kind of mind blown by this whole saga. It's, it's, there's a lot of bizarre things uh, about it. Yeah, we have no idea what evidence uh, the police uncovered during their investigation. We don't really know what their decision-making process was, if there was some consideration of what the legal process would be, what it would expose, what happens if it's appealed to higher courts. What does that mean for this D.C. law that, that you're saying prevents the recording of pornography or obscenity? Who knows? There could be a number of things. I think, you know, a lot of us are like, well, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to speak on this because it's apparently a legal matter. But as citizens of a democracy, theoretically, we all have some say in what we deem right and wrong in the public sphere. Now, if someone was in a congressional building, those are open to the public. If you work there, I can understand locking the door. That room's not one that's open to the public. I have gone in the Senate building and there have been doors that are locked. So although it's open to the public, there are various restrictions to who can go where and what's happening within the building. Of course, there needs to be some level of privacy in a place where extremely top secret matters are discussed that are matters of national security. So very interesting case. I think because, you know, the staffer no longer works there, we're not going to see much come of this. I'm not sure how many people know who the staffer is. It seems to me that what I've heard of on the Hill being in D.C., that there are a lot of people who know whose staffer this was and who it was. So I don't anticipate them working on the Hill in the future. Yeah, he was a, a staffer for Senator Ben Cardin, and his name is public, although we're not going to say it on this channel. Uh, but it's very well known who he is. His face was in the video. So, I mean, you can identify him if you see screenshots or whatever uh, is floating out there. But um, I would just say that I think it would be, you'd be hard-pressed to find a majority of people agreeing that it is not acceptable to sneak off for a quickie in the Senate building just because the door is locked and technically the public can't enter. Um, I just—that reasoning sort of confounds me, to be honest with you. I wasn't making an excuse. I didn't say it's totally chill that someone snuck away and had sex in the Senate building. I said, you know, that would be a situation where it's not a, a public room where the public could uh -huh. walk in and see what's happening. Do I think someone should have sex at work? Unless that's their job, probably not a good idea. I do have a problem, though. I think many working Americans do with this notion that the boss owns all of your time between clock in and clock out. It feels very futile to me that the boss would be able to tell you everything you do when you're clocked in. We know congressional staffers work very long hours. Should they be sneaking away and having quickies, you know, while they're at work? It's it's definitely unsanitary. That's my beef with it. I wouldn't want to be in that room afterwards. But I think, uh, you know, respecting people's personal space and time at work is important. I think if they want to sneak away and take a break in a, a room where they don't have the public walking in, that's totally cool with me, but do I think it's it's fine that they were having sex in a congressional room? No, mostly because it's a little bit gross to me, a little bit unsanitary. Yeah, I mean, they do have an hour lunch break where technically they're not being paid, where their boss can't control their actions. But otherwise, if you're on the clock, should you not be doing what your job duties say you're supposed to be doing? It's interesting because that's where it gets fuzzy for a lot of congressional staffers. So there's a account that you can follow of the congressional staffers that are unionizing, dear white staffers. They report on this a lot of what it's like for the mostly young people working in Congress, working on the Hill, serving our elected members of the Senate and the House. And many of them are actually working hours far beyond what's expected of them. 
And I think it's it's interesting to get into that because these are people that are serving the public. They're doing public service. They care about the people that they serve. A lot of times they're from the districts that they're now working for in Congress. And so, yeah, I've worked in politics before. I care a lot. I've worked way longer hours because I care. And so there are a lot of staffers that there's just this unspoken expectation that they work far beyond eight hours a day, that they're working sometimes 14 hours a day. I've worked, you know, 14 hour days when I was on the Bernie campaign, not because it was asked of me or expected, but because I wanted to, because I wanted to keep knocking doors, keep talking to voters. You know, politics is one of those jobs where you either get into it because you love the West Wing or because you really care. But in both situations, there's kind of an expectation of working longer hours, which, you know, that's how you get burnout. That's how you get a lot of really bright minds leaving the field and not being in public service anymore. I don't think that's a good thing that, you know, it's actually not just an hour break that they're getting and working four hours on either side. Yeah, I mean, I think most of the positions are salaried. So there would be the expectation that you work however long it takes you to complete whatever your required job duties are versus an hourly worker who's getting paid based on how much time they actually spend on the job, just a different job construction. But we're out of time. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Attack on Elmo, actor Larry David came out of nowhere on the Today Show and beat up Elmo following his interview on emotional well-being. All right, let's go over to Alfred, check of the weather. Oh, and not yet, not wait, yet, wait, 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 not wait, 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 wait. Oh my gosh, you oh, love Elmo, don't you? Ask permission, ask permission before you touch people, Larry. Oh. All right, Larry, then. you've gone too far this time. <laughs> yes, Larry. Somebody had to do it. Oh. Is anybody really surprised? Larry David has apologized for his attack on the puppet. Go ahead. Say you're sorry. Elmo. Larry. I, I just want to apologize. Thank you, Larry. That's okay. very Elmo, big of you. Elmo accepts your apology. President Joe Biden responded to the incident, writing on X, I know how hard it is some days to sweep the clouds away and get to sunnier days. Our friend Elmo is right. We have to be there for each other, offer our help to a neighbor in need, and above all else, ask for help when we need it. Even though it's hard, you're never alone. And then a tweet from Peterson, I can rightly believe that those who are writing tweets for poor old Joe Biden are admirers of that bloody, horrible, whiny puppet Elmo would definitely vote for the Democrats. Triggered? <laughs> Is comedy dead? Why are they taking Elmo so seriously, Amber? I have no idea. I only hope that that was an attempt from a joke from Jordan Peterson. I know that he does have a generally good sense of humor. Uh, it doesn't come across on Twitter, that's for sure. But I just think this is all obviously just a big marketing scheme for the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like, obviously, they're trying to generate PR and controversy so that people will know the new season is coming out and they will go watch it. It just seems uh, too obvious to me that this is all some marketing genius. If not from Larry David himself, then the, uh, the individuals who manage his schedule and his PR because I can't think of any other reason why, first of all, Larry David would even appear on this show in the first place, let alone pull this stunt of beating up Elmo, unless it were to have him be basically in character for how he behaves on Curb. Yeah, that's how it goes when people are on 
on the PR trail. They end up on Good Morning America. They try and get a viral moment. Of course, Larry David does so successfully because unlike Jordan Peterson, he's actually funny. But there was more (laughs) on Good Morning America. Elmo wasn't the only one David attacked. So the Curb Your Enthusiasm star had some things to say about Taylor Swift. Let's watch. You you've really got a nerve. Yeah. You've really got, you've really got a nerve. You bring it out no, or not? By the way, I we I, weren't going to. We I weren't. used I used the S word once before <laughs> on this show some years ago. Oh, I'm prepared to use oh, it no. again. No, no, no. In answer to that question, <laughs> and I think you know it's I don't give. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Oh, that, okay. A schnoodle. A yeah, schnoodle. A schnoodle. Yes. Okay. Makes sense to me, but some people are curious about Taylor Swift's potential political pull. The pop star was included in a new poll, and the data suggests that one-fifth of American voters and 30% of young voters would be more likely to vote for a candidate endorsed by Swift. The administration has been actively courting Swift in an attempt to poll those voters. Meanwhile, Swift got some props from Tim Pool on his podcast for pulling a fast one on the Soros family. Take a look. Man, it's just, it's just Taylor Swift pulled off what may be one of the biggest FUs to the Soros family ever. Hmm. They bought music for, for something, I, I think it was 300, can you fact check me on this? I think it was $300 million. And then by her re-recording it all, she ripped $300 million out of their pockets. Man. That's because she, their, their investment becomes zero. So they bought the masters, not the publishing. They, so she owns the artist composition, right? Which means the songs Correct. core. Yeah. Okay. The 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 recordings she did were bought by Soros and the Carlisle Group and these other investors. By re-recording it, that investment was worthless now. Right. Just absolutely worthless. Yeah. So I think the. I guess she's praising her for doing that move to re-record her old masters. Um, I didn't know that the Soros family was involved in that. I'm not sure it's super relevant, but um, there's been a weird fight over Taylor Swift recently where a lot of people on the right are sort of painting her as this like demonic influence on young people. Um, They are painting her as like this horrible um, creature that is pushing people to the left. I'm a little skeptical of how people are reading this specific poll that says about a quarter of people would be more likely to vote for someone that Taylor Swift endorses, if only for the fact that everyone already knows where Taylor Swift stands politically. She endorsed Joe Biden in 2020. I don't think anyone is under the impression that she's suddenly going to take a turn to the hard right and endorse Donald Trump. So I suspect that those people saying they're likely or more likely to vote for who Taylor Swift endorses are probably people who were gonna vote for Biden anyway. So I don't see it as this huge calamity that the right is. And I've also seen some countercultural takes from the right, or at least counter to people on the conservative side, where they've pointed out that Taylor Swift for a long time was dating these sort of artsy Hollywood and. Uh, British types, and now she's dating like a real American man. She's dating this football player who towers over her and is able to protect her. And so therefore, the right should be celebrating her as evidence that feminism doesn't, doesn't work. But I just, the whole conversation about it, I find, frankly, kind of annoying. Um, I don't know why just One, we have to attach politics to absolutely everything. And two, why we can't just be normal for like five seconds. 
Yeah, what's interesting about what you just said is I think Travis Kelsey's a great feminist. He's such a good supporter of her career and them having their own independent lives and Taylor being such a powerful woman. And I think he's a testament to most strong, attractive women really wanting a man who's a good feminist, which means being okay with your woman, being extremely powerful and having a huge career. I've seen a lot of this nonsense on the internet. I saw a TikTok that had a concerning amount of views of Taylor Swift on stage looking pretty in a sparkly leotard, not looking demonic at all, holding her microphone out so her fans could sing along with her in concert. And then the next photo was her painted as a caricature of a big demon going over the crowd with a hunchback, very scary looking thing. Why do you think this, this of Taylor Swift, the conspiracy has been that Taylor Swift is dating Travis Kelsey and now they're going to the, the Super Bowl, which of course is a coordinated plan by the NFL so that now Taylor Swift has more notoriety and when she ultimately endorses Joe Biden, they will win. Thank God Tim Pool's pointing this out because a part of this conspiracy of the powers that be is that somehow George Soros is you know, controlling all of our minds and all of our politics. And he actually explains how what Taylor Swift did went against rich and powerful people's capital accumulation. It's almost like she's not connected to the political establishment in a meaningful way that we should be concerned about. It's a little bit ridiculous. How about we focus on the real problems like wage stagnation since the 70s, Americans living paycheck to paycheck, and individual tax cuts expiring in December of 2025, when corporate tax cuts will remain at a flat rate, which I will say is lower than what many Americans pay at 21%, when Walmart's profiting $12 billion, and they have workers not paid enough to live off of, depending on public programs like Medicaid and food stamps. How about we focus on the real problems? Because I'll tell you what, the people in power are very happy that many of us are caught up in these conspiracies that distract from the real problems of capital capture in the country. And does this have to do with Taylor Swift? Uh, not really, not at all. <laughs> I would say the one part of the conspiracy that I'm probably on board with is the idea that the NFL playoffs were rigged only because I'm a Baltimore Ravens fan, and I would rather believe that it was rigged than the idea that Lamar Jackson would have thrown an interception into triple coverage in the end zone. But that's just for my own personal piece. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Texas Congressman Dan Crenshaw laid into Republicans intent on killing the Senate's bipartisan border deal. Let's take a listen. The height of stupidity is having a strong opinion on something you know nothing about. I'm, I'm extremely disappointed in the very strange maneuvering by many on the right to, to, to torpedo uh, a potential border reform bill. If we have a bill that on net significantly decreases illegal immigration and we sabotage that, that is as inconsistent with what we told our voters we would do. People will make up whatever reasons they, they want to. There's a number of them, I'm sure. But it would be a, a pretty unacceptable dereliction of, of your duty. Meanwhile, other Republicans made the case for sabotaging the legislation, specifically to hurt President Joe Biden. Why would we do anything right now to help him with that 33 percent? Do you believe if Joe Biden's approval rating was at 53 percent, we would even be talking about the border? We won't be talking about the southern border, but he has to do something because he's hemorrhaging. He's bleeding. So what he's going to try to do is try to come up with some border security plan, bipartisan through the Senate. That is nothing but hogwash. It would be a big mistake to uh, um, 
surrender, um, uh, abandon our allies and surrender to Putin in Ukraine like we did in Afghanistan. Could, but are you worried about the fact that they're throwing cold water and rejecting it out of hand without yeah, even looking I, at I it? Yeah, I think we had to give them a chance to come up with a bill and look at it and then decide. Meanwhile, Fox's Bill Nelgwin reports more data showing a significant drop in illegal crossings in Texas's Del Rio sector, or Eagle Pass. The drop has been since Texas locked it down and Mexico increased their enforcement per CBP sources. There were 71,000 apprehensions in December, and that's compared to just 16,000 apprehensions in January, or a 76% decrease in one month. So Amber, how do you feel about that data on illegal crossings? Yeah, I think it's great news and it shows that what Texas is doing is working. Of course, there's going to be a court case coming up here in just a couple of days actually to determine whether or not Texas can continue deploying this razor wire. There's been a battle where the Supreme Court issued a stay on a lower court's decision saying that the feds can go in and remove that wire if they want to. Texas has basically said, we're just going to keep putting it up. If you want to come in and take it down, you can try. But our agents are here. We're going to continue doing this. And the feds have since backed off. The Biden uh, DHS has said that they're basically not going to get into a fight with Texas until this court case goes through, which I think is the right move. Um, at this point, you basically have a federal government that is uh, derelict in its duty to protect the United States. At the very least, if you want to call yourself a sovereign country, you have to have control over your own borders. Clearly, that hasn't been the case during the Biden administration. So I think Texas is doing the right thing in protecting itself in lieu of the government deploying its own resources to do so. You know, I feel like maybe Fox News and a lot of the conservative media conversation, you know, saying that we have open borders and that Biden's changed the border policy so much when really I don't think it's a significant amount. Certainly, it's not an open border policy. But maybe the Mexicans are watching Fox News. Maybe the people trying to cross the southern border have heard from the conservative pundits that there's actually an open border. And maybe now, you know, crossings are down because they realize that that wasn't true. So who knows what's going on there? But I think the Republicans, you know, Troy Nell's not the first time he said that, that uh, they're not going to pass any, you know, bipartisan border policy because they don't want to make Joe Biden look good. If it's a crisis, really, you would get something done. Obviously, you know, Representative Nels does not believe this is a crisis if he's not willing to compromise out of fear it might make the president look good. We used to be a country where people cared a little bit more about policy getting passed uh, than making the president look good or bad, wanting to keep his approval ratings down. Not a good reason to not address a crisis, in my opinion. I don't think this House Secure the Border Act is ever going to pass in the Senate. I think it's ridiculous that they think it will be. There's some things included in here that they want to detain anyone who has submitted an asylum application but has established a credible fear of persecution. What does that mean? Who gets to determine what a credible fear of persecution, if they're nervous talking to border security, does that then give them the ability to detain that person seeking asylum? There's just a few things in here that are so ridiculous that, of course, this will never pass through the Senate. There's also, you know, statements in here about having children uh, be detained at the border. There's just a lot of very extreme policies in here. And, and even language that's not up to date, calling migrant children alien child, it's just a lot. Which leads me to my next question, Amber. I'm curious if you feel strongly about the immigration issue because they were called aliens for so long and you believe that they might be demons. 
<laughs> I guess that is a good question. Uh, let's break down the specifics in the Senate bill, um, just so we can, for comparison's sake, look at it against H.R. 2, because although I disagree with Troy Nels that the reason for opposing it should not be because you don't want to give Biden a win, it should be because the bill is just bad. It doesn't actually do anything to secure the border. So this is a bill that was negotiated between the lead Republican negotiator, James Lankford, and then several Democrats, including Chuck Schumer. And what it does is illegal immigrants who are released from custody immediately get work permits, which increases a pool factor for why people are coming to the U.S. illegally in the first place. Um, for some reason, it helps reform the legal immigration system, which doesn't have anything to do with border security, because it increases the number of green cards the U.S. government can give out each year by 50,000. It also gives green cards to adult children of H-1B visa holders. Um, it does not change Biden's parole system. It uh, does increase the number of border agents, asylum officers, and detention beds, which only decreases, or excuse me, only increases border security if you're not going to catch and release the people who are being encountered at the southern border, which is what the Biden administration policy is. So basically, you're just increasing how quickly you can process someone before releasing them into the United States. And the worst part of the bill is that it creates this sort of arbitrary cap on how many people are allowed to cross the border on either a daily or weekly basis before Border Patrol has to start uh, doing expedited removal. The numbers are 5,000 a day across a seven-day period average, or 8,500 per day on any single day. This is equivalent to about 150,000 a month, or 2 million a year. This is above what were considered crisis levels during the Trump administration, when you might remember we had all of that coverage about the migrant caravans that were coming across Honduras and Guatemala to the southern border. The highest record month under the Trump administration was in May of 2019. Uh, in that month, we saw about 110,000 illegal encounters at the southern border. Now we're talking about codifying 150,000 a month under this Lankford-Schumer bill. So there's plenty of reasons for Republicans to oppose this, and, and namely because it doesn't address border security. I would put that far ahead of these claims about not wanting to give Joe Biden a win. And then on the question of did Joe Biden create this crisis or did Fox News create this crisis by covering it, I think it was very clear from the fact that when Biden was running for office and in the months leading up to him actually taking office on January 20th of 2021, he was very clear about what he was going to do on immigration. He repeatedly called Trump's immigration policy inhumane, unjust, and some of the first actions he took as president were to loosen border restrictions and border security. He got rid of public charge rules that required uh, immigrants coming to the U.S. to have a sponsor that would um, help them find housing, help pay for them, and said that they weren't going to be allowed to get taxpayer benefits and taxpayer money. He also dropped the policy that would prosecute all illegal crossers. He issued a deportation moratorium. He uh, suspended the Remain in Mexico policy. He got rid of the Mexico agreement, where in exchange for more aid to Mexico, Mexico would agree to use its National Guard to help prevent crossings on their side of the border. And there's really a whole list of, I think it's 64 actions that you can look at that Biden took in really just the first few months that he was in office that did, in fact, make this effectively an open border policy. Now, if we're talking again about this Senate bill of $2 million a year, 
that's the population of some U.S. states that Lankford and Schumer are apparently okay with coming into the United States with very minimal screening. So I do have a problem with this Senate bill. I would not uh, fault any Republican for opposing it. In fact, I think if you are serious about border security and you think this is a crisis, then you have an obligation to oppose the Senate bill. I think we suffer from a lack of imagination around policymaking in this country. When I think about people crossing the southern border, I don't know if the solution is detaining them. That's a, a huge expense for American taxpayers, for public dollars that could be budgeted elsewhere. I do actually think that they should be given a work permit if they're released in the United States. What would we rather have than work in the U.S. illegally? That doesn't sound right to me, so good on Schumer for including that. But I think they could go a bit further, because if we're allowing this amount of people into the United States, we've got to have some kind of macroeconomic economic policy to match the amount of people coming in because we're increasing our labor force tremendously. And so what we could do, and Wall Street unfortunately would agree with me on this, is we could then lower interest rates tremendously, increase the creation of new businesses and investment in businesses. So then we have more people employed in the United States. We don't have a shortage of resources. We don't have a shortage of land or materials. We could employ those workers, build up infrastructure, high-speed trains, fix the potholes across America. And and put the immigrants coming to the country to work. What we need freed up is capital to pay them and mobilize those resources so that we can be productive as the economy. Let's run the economy fully, completely hot. And by the way, it doesn't need to be done through lowering interest rates so banks are loaning more and more people are taking out those loans. We could instead have direct public investment in these infrastructure programs. Then we would have more people going to work. We'd have less people unemployed. We would have more things to enjoy in the country and better roads to drive on. But uh, unfortunately, we suffer for, from a severe, I think, lack of imagination on how to handle you know, the immigration crisis. We're not seeing a lot of ideas in this direction for how this could really improve our country from either sides of the aisle. So I think you know, that part's missing from the Senate bill and certainly from the House bill as well. Yeah, I would just close by saying that I think uh, if history is any guide and the reality of the situation right now, it's that we don't have the resources to help take care of this massive influx, certainly not in the short term. We've seen situations where children have been asked to go to school remotely, where people have been kicked out of community centers and shelters in favor of housing people who have come into the country illegally and are not American citizens. And unfortunately, we're doing this at the expense of people who do pay taxpayer dollars, people who do live here and who are American citizens, who certainly deserve resources primarily before people who want to come and take advantage of their hard work. We'll be back with more well, Rising after this. I just described how we open up those resources sources to be used. But I guess we're out of time. More rising after this. Add another problem to the growing pile at Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis's feet. House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan has subpoenaed Willis for information on spending by her office following bombshell audio of a whistleblower informing the DA that her top aide was engaged in misuse of federal funds. As a reminder, Willis is also under investigation for impropriety related to hiring her alleged boyfriend, Nathan Wade, to serve as the special prosecutor in former President Trump's election fraud case in Georgia. Willis has not yet responded to Jordan's most recent subpoena. I guess you got to RSVP to those. But she previously wrote that, quote, settled constitutional law clearly permits me to ignore your unjustified and illegal intrusion. We'll add another point calling the efforts by the GOP, 
quote, bullying by members of Congress. Willis added, your attempt to invoke congressional authority to intrude upon and interfere with an active criminal case in Georgia is flagrantly at odds with the Constitution. So strong words coming from Fonnie Willis. Uh, Of course, the investigation into how she hired an attorney she had a romantic relationship with to be the top prosecutor on the case is at the center of this. But very interesting that some former staffers say that they were fired immediately after asking about the misuse of federal funds allocated to uh, the DA's office. So that's very interesting, but we'll see what comes of those allegations. I assume it's, you know, Jordan's plan to then subpoena and get the testimony from those employees. Yeah, there is one one woman in particular who was on this audio tape. It was leaked to the Washington Free Beacon, reported on, I believe, by Andrew Kerr over there. And in the audio, she's actually in D.A. Willis's office and talking to her about how she feels that she was retaliated against because she called out her superior for trying to misuse federal grant funds. So apparently this this person that she was working under was trying to use the money for travel and for uh, whatever else he was trying to use it for that was against the, the grant. She said that she tried to warn him that the grant was very specific about what the money could be used for. And then he subsequently took her off multiple cases that she was working on and started bad-mouthing her around the office. So in the audio, she's basically on the verge of tears in D.A. Willis's office telling her about all that's transpired. And I gotta say, D.A. Willis could not be any more sympathetic to this woman. She basically goes on uh, about how, well, if that's how you feel, then I'm sorry that you felt that way. But of course, you could always go to HR. And apparently, the woman res- or the woman responds that um, she felt like she couldn't go to HR because the guy had poisoned HR against her or something to that effect. And D.A. Willis just kind of brushes her off. Then the woman ended up being fired later on um, after she brought these allegations to D.A. Willis. And so that's even a a separate thing from the allegations about Nathan Wade and her relationship with him, which is where congressional involvement comes in. Um, So when D.A. Willis is accusing Jim Jordan of interfering with the election fraud case, it's not exactly accurate. I mean, in an indirect way, possibly, if she were to get pulled off of the case for these um, misconduct allegations, But the reality is is that this specific one is in a a completely separate incident from what's going on with the Trump trial. This is a question of the misuse of federal grant funds, which would definitely put it under the purview of Congress, because they are the ones that, of course, approve the money to be made available for those federal grants. They, therefore, have the ultimate oversight over how those grants are spent and if they're being used improperly. Yeah, I think... If anyone's a little bit upset about this, this prosecution of Fonnie Willis, I can understand being annoyed that a lot of the accountability public officials get in the United States is usually in the direction of blue team versus red team. It can be a little annoying when you see the GOP calling for the prosecution and investigation of prominent members of the blue team that are Democrats. And yeah, that happens. I wish it was more across the board, but I don't think that means it's like a bad thing when it does happen. I think any prosecution of corruption is good for the country. And if we find it, we should weed it out. If Fonnie Willis is in the middle of all of this and she thinks it's getting in the way of the Trump case, put another attorney on it, put another prosecutor on that case. So her being in the middle of it is a distraction. If that's her thoughts, I think this congressional subpoena is about an independent matter. Is Jim Jordan doing it? 
because Fannie Willis has been the subject of a lot of you know public attention because of this Georgia case around the 2020 election fraud? Of course, of course. But does it really matter? No, it's weeding out corruption. I just wish people like Jim Jordan would do it across the board. And I think it matters in that sense that you know they really need to use their authority to investigate corruption, not just when it's convenient political opponents. Yeah, I agree. I think the American people want to see corruption rooted out across both political parties at all levels of the government. And unfortunately, it's something that's become very commonplace. Um, and just to remind viewers a little bit about what's going on with the Nathan Wade case, Nathan Wade's soon-to-be ex-wife, who's filing divorce right now, is basically calling for Fonnie Willis to come testify in that case. In fact, they've issued a subpoena for her because she believes that they were, in fact, engaging in an affair while they were still married and that Nathan Wade was using the nearly million dollars that he was being paid to investigate the former president on lavish vacations that he took with the DA, Fonnie Willis. So, I mean, even at the very least, if they weren't engaged in some kind of sexual or romantic relationship, it would be hard to argue that he was not uh, being inappropriate or misusing funds um, by, by taking her on these vacations in exchange for him being put on this case and then subsequently being, uh, being charged to be one of the lead prosecutors, especially considering uh, this guy does not have any experience prosecuting a crime of this nature. This is a, a very serious charge. She charged Donald Trump under RICO statutes. And this guy's experience amounts to him basically being a judge in family court. Yeah, and there was some admission of guilt when Fonnie Willis addressed that church. She said uh, she's an imperfect person. She wasn't saying they're lying. They're painting me as a bad person. There's no truth in any of these allegations. It seemed that there was some accountability taken, which in that case, if you are really having a romantic relationship with someone you appoint to be the top prosecutor, they get a pay raise. And that money... I'm sure, went to pay for a part of that vacation. I mean, it's too many obvious actions one after the next. It's time to step aside in that case. And also, as a legal-minded person, as a prosecutor, you have to be aware that there's something a little bit off about that pattern of behavior and use of power. And it seems to me that that's pretty standard operating procedure for a lot of people in public office in America, which is why I do say the, the prosecution is good. But many people across the country care a lot about 2024 and what happened in 2020, the, the days following the election, the allegations that the election was stolen. In many cases, there was no evidence found whatsoever. Some cases we still haven't heard. But there really hasn't been a founding for any of the allegations from Trump and his aide saying that there was fraud. And so in this case of Georgia, we really need a, a proper investigation into it before 2024. And I think Fonnie Willis is, is getting in the way of that at this point. So if you care about this case, you should be a little bit more upset about Fonnie Willis's personal actions getting in the way of it than the prosecution of it. It's also fascinating that Fonnie Willis has multiple clips that have not now come out prior to 2020, I believe, where she actually explicitly says that she would punish people who were found having romantic or sexual relationships with other people in the workplace. Um, in these public panels, basically, she talks about how terrible it is for morale and for um, office ethics for people to be sleeping with one another. And yet, here we are. <laughs> That's gonna do it for us today on Rising. Just as always, great spending Rising Fridays with you. Another good Friday. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you next Friday. Bye, y'all.